Adam Gopnik, welcome to Fritanke Pod. It is wonderful to be with you, Christian. It's great to have you here in Sweden. You, we've just published your book uh, in Swedish. It's called Tusen små framsteg. And with the subtitle uh, in Swedish, Liberalismen, ett moraliskt äventyr. A moral adventure you call liberalism. What exactly do you mean by that? In what sense is it a moral adventure? Well, one of you know the 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 vagaries of language are one of a, of every author's favorite subjects, and particularly the vagaries of translation. <laughs> and when my book came out, this book came out in Italian. Uh, they decided to call it by its original title, which was the Rhinoceros Manifesto, which is explained in the in the course of the book, and I'll come back to it. Mm. And with the subtitle Liberalismo e Amore. Liberalism and love. Uh, what a great, that captures it perfectly. And then it occurred to me that every book in Italian is probably published, right? You know, if you wrote a book about physics, it'd be physique e amore. Yes. And they just add e amore to everything that they publish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But nonetheless, it wasn't far off. It, call it liberalism and love in as much as one of the things I wanted to do in this book, and that's in the sterner uh, tone of uh, moral adventure, was to remind people specifically my daughter, to whom the book was written as a kind of philosophical letter, I wanted to remind them of the basis of liberalism, liberal democracy, liberal humanism, not in some kind of uh, dry, proceduralist, uh, inventory-taking individualism, but in this great moral adventure that had electrified and stirred um, some of the greatest uh, human beings, some of the greatest... uh, human couples, at least in, in the West, that, it, that the point about liberalism was not that it was a dry way of making rules for a game that you would play, but that it was an inspiring moral adventure that said, in effect, why can't we spread freedom and equality simultaneously? Why can't we engage mm. on a great project of reforming uh, mankind and men's and men's and women's institutions. So I, that was the sense in which I met uh, moral adventure. I meant mm. that liberalism was not um, a kind of dreary neutralism that just mm. provided a set of uh, of uh, sterile functions that allowed you to govern a country. That it was in fact a great moral adventure. It was mm. it was a form of amore. Would you say there that there are some kind of uh, ethical conflict areas built into liberalism. I mean, freedom uh, compared to that you have to keep certain restraints to get equality, for example. Yes, well, you know, one of the key moments in the book, and kind of is where the book begins, I'm thinking about, um, is in writing about uh, John Stuart Mill Mm. and Harriet Taylor, the greatest uh, uh, British liberal philosopher, maybe the greatest of all liberal philosophers, and the woman whom he loved and gave all the credit for, and and for, for 100 years, People treated her as a kind of Yoko Ono figure who he (laughs) he was infatuated with but hadn't really contributed. In retrospect, we know that she really was his partner in this. And one of the things that fascinated me, and it's where the book begins, is they had this this beautiful love affair. Uh, It had to be clandestine because she was married with three children. And they used to meet by the rhinoceros cage at the London Zoo um, secretly. Mm. Um, And they would say, let's meet by our old friend rhinoceros. And there they would sit. No one would notice them. And they would debate. Uh, the future. John Stuart Mill was writing on liberty, the greatest uh, testament for individual liberty, freedom from censorship and oppression that's ever been. And then together they were writing on the subjection of women, a, a, a crusading enterprise in social justice. And what was extraordinary about them, I think, Krister, is that they didn't see any contradiction between those two things exactly. They be, Exactly because they are the Mills, they eventually were able to get married, saw that 
the that what mattered was having the liberty to become a full human being, if I can use that kind of old-fashioned language, to fully develop yourself. You didn't want to be free in order to eat more bread and butter. You wanted there to be more bread and butter in the world so people could listen to Mozart and read Goethe and become who they were fully capable of being. Mm. And in that way, the emancipation of women and the assertion of individual liberty were parts of one project, parts yeah. of one. I always think of the, the Mills as sort of being having come up with a unified field theory of <laughs> politics rather in the way that uh, the physicists dream of coming up with a unified field theory, which would bring gravitation and, and uh, quantum electrodynamics together, that the idea is that there is no contradiction between searching for social reform mm. and affirming individual liberty. Well, the, the pr problem must be... Uh, I think that when it comes to physics, you know that there can't be a contradiction uh, because the reality actually yes, works. Right. So yes. there, there has to be an explanation that does have no that that doesn't have any. Ultimately, there has to be a unified. Yeah, yeah. But when it comes to politics, that's not necessarily the case because it might be it might be necessary to give up some goals to achieve others, right? Yes, and I think that that's obviously that's part of the logic of of politics, and one of the things that I tried to root the book, and that was the sense in which it's about a moral adventure, mm. not just about a procedural inquiry. It, that's the sense in which it's about a amore, is, is that it's obvious that um, the Mills uh, realized from their own experience, which was necessarily compromised, their own love affair had to mm. be um, uh, envisioned and, and lived as a kind of compromise, because they had many other people whom they had to uh, placate and whom they had yeah. to please. And that's the sort of model for Uh, democratic politics. It's not as easy as, will the romantic or utopian dream will run away and be in love. But let me add an, another thought, which is kind of, in I offer in passing in the book, but I think it's an important one, it, since we're talking about, you know, models of science mm. versus models of politics. As you know, um, in exactly the same publishing season that Mills on Liberty was published, Darwin's On the Origin of Species was published, 1859. Mm. That's a good year for a publisher. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, think yeah. you'd agree. You had those two books on your list and you'd feel that you'd had a good season. In fact, <laughs> whether or not you had Robert Ludlum as well, you'd, you'd feel that was a good, good <laughs> yes, publishing yes, year. Yes, yes. And one sure. of the things that makes Darwin, I think, a foundation, I've written a book about Darwin, a foundation for liberalism in that sense is, is exactly that Darwin extinguishes essentialism from biology. He says there is no such thing as the essence of a species. There is no such thing as the essence of man. Everything in the biological universe is in a constant state of transformation, change, mutation, mm. evolution. Mm. Um, and that, I think, is a profound philosophical revolution that we still haven't come to the end of and that informs liberalism in a very profound way mm. that says, That's interesting. you know, that says we're never going to be able to have an essentialist account of the world. There is no proletariat. There is no bourgeoisie. All of those kinds of terms that we use to try and crystallize or capture our political reality are always going to be like species. They're always going to be partial, contingent, mm -hmm. true only for a historical moment, that we're always going to be in a dynamic system that's always evolving. That was part of Mill's vision. And therefore, we're always going to be in position, always going to be renegotiating mm. the social contract. There is no core social contract. It's a constant renegotiation of mm. what's going on. So in that sense, yes, absolutely. We have to ask ourselves all the time, what are the limits of liberty and what are the demands of the community? But what you don't have to say is, 
that they belong to two separate um, discourses, two, two mm. separate ways of seeing the world. But how do, how do you relate to the philosophical ideas that, for example, Derek Parfit, I mean, he believes in an, he was a moral realist. He mm-hmm. thought there are objective truth values to moral statements. Yes. What's your opinion on that? And how does it relate to what you're saying now? My son is a Parfitian, I should add. My son, who's a philosopher, <laughs> is a Parfitian who's trying to apply Parfit's ideas to aesthetics now. Uh-huh. Um, that's his. That's his project. Wow! So it, and he will soon shut me up and retire <laughs> me to Florida and say, "Dad, don't opine about things about which you know so little." Um, I, it seems to me that it's perfectly possible to believe in um, moral norms. It's not so much absolutes that Parfit talks about, mm-hmm. but have a normative vision of mm-hmm. of of ethics that it's not just arbitrary. Right? It's arguable. I think that's per- that's perfectly possible. To believe, and at the same time to recognize that one of the fundamental, maybe the foundational fact about human society is that it's plural. Everybody's got their own opinion. Everybody has mm-hmm. their own view of the world, and that's irreducible. You're never going to be able to no. to eliminate that. I say, and there's I have a piece coming out in the New Yorker next week in which I talk about how the perennial temptation of utopian politics, particularly utopian left-wing politics, is what I call Munchkinland thinking, which is that if you could just drop a house on the witch, everything would be okay. All the munchkins would come out and we'd have perfect unity and concord. And the reality is, in the real Oz, in the real Munchkinland, you drop a house on the witch and all you get is munchkins arguing among themselves about who should be ascendant. You can never eliminate in a, in mm. a human society the essential form of pluralism that arises from the fact that people have very different values and very different views. And in in the liberal conception, as I understand it, is to say, we're not going to try, we'll never can and never want to extinguish that plurality of views. We never want to sanction one set of views. We can argue about some views that are sanctionable, but we accept that pluralism as a fact. And then the question for politics is, how do you keep us from killing each other? How do you make mm. politics do the work of change without being But still, you, w- you would not like to accept norms, for example, in a certain subculture that uh, suppresses women or, you know... It's a big question, though, isn't it? Mutilations right. or whatever. Because we're dealing with that question every moment in in, in Europe, right? When yeah. we talk about the burqa, when we talk about... Exactly, yeah. You know, we talk about those things. I'm, But my point would be, and it's a bit, I recognize that it's a bit of a, of a dodge, but it's a... It's a Uh, democratic dodge mm-hmm. is to say those are the things that we have to debate. Those are exactly the areas mm. of of um, tension where we have to debate them. And usually, we can find a rational compromise in the in male sense that allows us to 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 manage. We can say, of course, women should be able to wear the the veil, uh, Muslim women, to work, but that. Uh, a burqa which annihilates a woman's face is so contrary to liberal values mm. that that liberalism is a very important point. I think uh, that I try and make in the book is that liberalism is not neutralism. Liberalism is not just a neutral background mm. against which people play out their own uh, their passions and affections. Liberalism is a set of values. We live here in Sweden or in Canada or the United States. We live for the moment, at least. In, in liberal democracies that have values, the value, mm. values of pluralism, tolerance, uh, values of equality between men and women. If you violate those values, um, we have sanctions for people who do. Those values are incredibly broad. That's, and they're incredibly broad. So the, when people say, as they often do, oh, well, liberalism is just another system of religious belief like 
religion, that's just not true, right? Yeah. Because religious belief is exclusive. It says you can believe this or you can be excluded. And mm. what liberalism says is you can believe this, you can believe that, you can believe this other thing. You can't believe that. We want that you can't believe. Mm. But within that spectrum, you can believe Catholicism, Judaism, uh, Lutheranism. Or uh, you could say that you can actually believe anything, but you're not, you don't have the right to impose it on others. Yes, that, well, yes, but then we get into complicated questions, right? What if you, we certainly say you can certainly believe in Islam and we want you to be a Muslim. Do you have a right to impose it on the women in your family, for instance? Mm. But, you know, make them wear make them cover their faces and wear it. Those are complicated questions. Mm, I, uh, I would say no to that. I would say, I would, I'm French enough by upbringing to, <laughs> or by ac- occupation to say no to that. My point is, is those are not irrational questions that have no conclusion. Those mm. are questions in which we can have uh, a productive uh, argument. And this is, a f- for me, another fundamental point. And forgive me, I know I'm jumping from point yeah, to point, fine. but in, in doing this, On the whole, human beings are pretty good at coexisting. You know, one of my favorite um, uh, museum exhibitions in the last 10 years was at the uh, Metropolitan Museum in New York. I did a lecture series about it. It was called Jerusalem 1000. And what was striking about it is that the Christian and the Jewish and the Muslim communities in Jerusalem at that point managed to coexist reasonably well. They were not always delighted with each other, but they traded, they swapped, they sold spices. The, the, um, the great um, uh, Muslim... Uh, 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 glassblowers made work for the Christians and for the Jews too. And they coexisted. And that's generally speaking, human beings, because they have to live and, and raise their children, coexist. Then the Crusades came and that whole world was annihilated by religious warfare. Mm. And all that liberalism is, tries to do in that way is to take that general human principle of coexistence and turn it in, into a practice of pluralism. Or maybe I should turn it the other way around. So take that practice of coexistence and turn it into a principle of pluralism. Say, you know what? We can just, you, you know how to live with people who don't always agree with you, but let's make that law bound. Let's see to it that the religious warfare can never begin again. That's what liberalism is. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Going back to Darwin, I mean, he, he, his uh, book was a good example of how a new idea, uh, idea could meet a lot of opposition because of dogmatic thinking in its time. Yes, but... Uh, religious but yes, in this case. Absolutely, but I, I wrote a whole book about yeah, this yeah. called Angels Tell and me. Ages. And one of the things that's also striking about Darwinism is that though it met some significant religious resistance, as we certainly know. And still do. And still does, in, certainly in parts of America. On the whole, if you think about the revolutionary effect of Darwin's thinking, mm. it was incorporated and um, uh, taken seriously and adapted very, very rapidly. Mm. Now, there are a lot of sociological reasons for that, but one powerful reason for it is the way that Darwin presented those ideas. Mm-hmm. On the Origin of Species is, I was joking with you about how lucky a publisher was who had On the Origin of Species and On Liberty in one publishing season. Um, I think, in fact, it was two different publishers. It was, uh, but but, uh, one of the things that makes Darwin such an extraordinary figure is exactly that he decided to write a book of persuasion and argument instead of writing a book of authority and insistence. Mm -hmm. So if you read On the Origin of Species, and it's one of the astonishing truths about that book is that there's not one specialized scientist book and then a popular mm-hmm. uh, introduction that was written afterwards. It's one book. He's saying, what I'm going to tell you is really hard to believe. It was hard for me to believe it. 
took me a long time to become convinced of it. But let me try and explain it to you. And then he doesn't begin with the announcement of a hypothesis or a unifying theory. He says, think about how dogs get bred. Think about how pigeons get bred. Mm. Think about how that happens. And, and we all know something about how that happens. And think, okay, the pigeon fanciers are changing pigeons generation to generation. Now imagine that that happened without a, a breeder, but it happened over millions of years by a, a natural process. Mm. And right away, you're engaged in it. Say, okay, all right, that begins to make some kind of sense. Mm. Darwin went to unimaginable lengths and had extraordinary uh, literary skills in order to present that idea not as a new dogma, but exactly as a set of arguable uh, propositions, things I can persuade you to believe. Mm. That's another fundamental liberal, I- yeah. liberal idea. It's a liberal book in that way because yeah. it says, I- I'm, this idea is difficult, but any... A person who's willing to try and understand it can, uh, can make sense of it. But he also had on his side his bulldog, Thomas yes. Huxley. <laughs> yes. It was more so rough. It was much rougher and also was, as I realized as I was writing the book, was prepared to play dirty by our standards. You know, okay. there's a review of um, On the Origin of Species. I think it's in December of that year in, I think, the, the London Times that is like superlative. This is the best, greatest book ever written. Okay, yeah. And Darwin kind of writes these winking letters to Huxley saying, I wonder who wrote that review. It's an anonymous review. I wonder who wrote it. And obviously he knew that Huxley had, oh, wow. he knew that Huxley had written it, uh-huh. you know, without saying, my best friend wrote this book. So you'd get in trouble for doing that today, but that was part of the the uh, the publicity machine for it. For it, but but underlying it is the idea that persuasion is possible. Persuasion mm-hmm. is possible, and that's a that's also uh, fundamental. Often defeated, and sometimes quite futile, but mm-hmm. not uh, entirely implausible liberal idea. I'd like to talk a little bit about you, actually. What brought you to this sort of position and these passions that you have? You, I know you have so many different passions, but first of all, I mean your passion for uh, philosophy or, or po- philosophy or politics, which this is. Where does it come from? From your parents or from It what? comes as a matter of, of kind of direct example from my father. My father was a professor of English literature for... Um, Uh, many years, for many mm. decades, ended up as a dean at McGill University in Montreal. And my father came from a very simple background. My grandfather, who was a man I loved and knew well, was a, a, in the wholesale fish business and then ran a little grocery store uh-huh. in Philadelphia, a Jewish immigrant from Ukraine, actually, though he thought of it as Russia, uh-huh. um, uh, with very limited English. And I mean, he spoke good English, but he couldn't read uh, very much at all mm. and so on. Couldn't have been a simpler man. My father went on to discover in college the world of 18th century English literature, which became his passion. Fielding and Richardson and Pope and and Johnson, which he sent on to me. But he also sent on to me his sense of excitement at that humanist tradition, at the idea that those values, particularly Enlightenment values, the values of the 18th century, were there and they were thrilling and they had changed his life. They had taken a... Jewish kid from uh, you know a neighborhood in Philadelphia mm. out into the world, out into the world of ideas and so on. Wow. So he very much gave me that as a as an inheritance and tried to live. I choke up with emotion a bit because he's much older now, of course. Mm. But when he was a, a younger man, you know, tried to instantiate those views in his work as a professor, in his work as a dean, as one of the key memories of my uh, childhood, is my father talking about grievance procedures that he had 
that he had put in the search for fairness. He was at the first uh, sexual harassment statues too. Mm -hmm. And the search for fairness, for expanding the realms of your compassion, for eliminating practices of cruelty that people accepted uh, was was central to his uh, nature. But he claimed it, interestingly, not so much as something internal, though in some ways, of course, it was, but it's something he had learned from opening out into the world of enlightenment ideas and enlightenment And thought. he talked with you about this when you were a child? Oh, all the time. Yes, that was very, you know, my. it was part of the peculiarity of my childhood and my upbringing, which I hope to write a book about sometime because I have six brothers and sisters and we were all brought up in this kind of bizarre Noah's Ark of uh, books because my parents were discovering ideas even as, and then sharing them because they were from that kind of a very simple background. Um, not simple people, but mm. from a simpler background. Mm. Um, in any case, so those ideas were core, what we call them what you will, secular humanism, mm. uh, cosmopolitan liberalism. Those mm. ideas were very, I got from my father and his example. Um, but then uh, when I was in my teens, I got hugely turned on by the writings of Karl Popper, the great yeah, political, yeah, yeah. the great political philosopher, the Vienna Circle, the Vienna Circle, and then beyond. And I, in have, a, you, have it, you read Carl Sigmund's book about the Vienna Circle? Yes, yes, and that, and Popper, we, of course, was the. Oh, really? Mm. Well, Popper, of course, was kind of the the Protestant of the Vienna Circle, yeah, 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 the, exactly. the one who didn't. And, and, and Gödel was actually in opposition. In, uh, yes, exactly, was, not a positivist. And Popper, no. one of Popper was, as you probably know from that book was a very unhappy man who suffered from persecution mania his whole yeah, life. Yeah, 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 yeah. And one of the things that was part of his persecution mania was that people thought he was a positivist and he wasn't a positivist, yeah. he was an anti-positivist. Well, when I was 19 in an act, you, you were telling me earlier today that you wrote to um, Douglas Hofstadter at the age of 20. <laughs> yeah. When we're 19 and 20, we sit down, we write letters to the people we admire, not understanding that they are very busy in a very little <laughs> yes, time, that's true. That's time true. for us. Um, but I wrote a letter. But he answered, actually. <laughs> and you, Hofstadter, it's, well, I wrote a letter to Popper, and he, he answered. Really? Yes, and he yeah, invited kept it, me. kept it? I, not only have I kept it, I then went to visit him twice in his no. home in Penn. I've written a piece <laughs> about it, which is one of my, a thing I'm proud of, called The Porcupine. Uh, uh, it's wow. appeared in The New Yorker. I'd love to read that. Uh, 10 or 15 years ago. And, of course, part of the comedy of it is, is Popper was the greatest apostle of the value of criticism yeah. that there's ever been, that, that uh, what matters is not what ideas we have, but how we go about uh, critiquing them from yeah. in that point of view. And Popper was, of all the human beings I've ever met, the least able to tolerate criticism that there's ever been. <laughs> and even to Isn't a 19-year-old kid, yes, but that's, <laughs> and even to a 19-year-old kid who was sort of taken aback by the degree of, uh-huh. of, uh-huh. of um, resentment and, and embitteredment this great thinker had. It doesn't matter. I mean, that's part of one of my, I write in that piece about Popper, one of my theories of, of humankind is that we always write at right angles to who we really are. Uh, and I think almost all good writers do that. We don't write what we are. We write the thing we wish to be. Mm-hmm. And Popper valued critical thinking in part because he was so hypersensitive to it, <laughs> I suspect. But you um, visited him twice. Twi- visited him twice and, and had two long conversations with him. As I say, I, I in, in, in encapsulated them or actually remembered them in this, this piece. So yeah. Popper was a huge influence on mm-hmm. me and remains so to this day. I think that uh, The Open Society and Its Enemies yeah. remains the core book for liberalism in, mm. in, in, in that sense, or a core book. Um, so those ideas all, all came to me. Now, when I went, 
how I'm, I forgive me. You ask a writer to start talking about himself, and you can't <laughs> shut him up. No, but, but I want to hear about your mother as well because my, she now, I know she was a logician. She's a logician and a linguist. Yeah, uh, still alive. Uh, and she, so she did work um, at a very exciting time in uh, uh, in the history of uh, of American intellect. She was um, with um, just behind Noam Chomsky at the University of Pennsylvania mm-hmm. in linguistics and logic, and she got interested in the very beginnings of what we now call cognitive science, the marriage of uh, computer science with linguistics and, and logic. That's where Douglas Hofstadter is working. It, it, yes, exactly. In that was, field, I mean. That great generation. We look mm. at them now and, and think of all those folks. And, but my mom was a logician, and, and uh, uh, she had a, a terrifically sharp... And uh, uh, my, my father was the squishy humanist. My mother was the, uh, the tough-minded scientist of the pair. And um, I remember her teaching me on the sand when they were on sabbatical in Italy at Urbino at the university there. I went to Pesaro, the nearby beach town. And I asked her, what's all this stuff? You, there was a book in our shelves called uh, Girdle's Proof by uh, Nagel. Nagel. By Nagel. Mm. I said, what's this all about? And she said, oh, let me show you. And she, with a piece of driftwood on the sand, she drew me yeah. Girdle's incompleteness proof, <laughs> which I didn't understand at all, except to say that I knew that there was one set of, of, of concepts that were on the bottom, and then you could arithmetize, you could, make those, you could assign numbers to each one of those prime sets. Numbers. Prime numbers. above, mm-hmm. and that that would create, uh, if you did that, if you understood that every number could also be part of a larger set or any, every proof, Was, could be assigned a number, then you began to get all these interesting... Yeah, yeah the thing is that you can assign a unique number to right. a, every proof, and if you only have the number, you can derive what, the proof. Right. That, which means that you can talk about the number, you can talk about it on a mathematical level and a mathematical level at the same time. It's, well, you That's understand it far more profoundly. <laughs> But at least on the sand, I grasped, yeah. the, well, the key thing was the idea of level and meta-level. That those, exactly. That, That's that, the key was the key, that was the key concept that, was, that Gödel had brought to... How, how old were you? I was 12 or 13 at that point. <laughs> oh my God. But that was very much how, we, how, how our family lived. We had a yeah. very intellectually incestuous family, which it is to this day. I, my favorite story about that is, is that the, uh, the French word for uh, grand appreciator, uh, we pronounced in our family as canoiser not connoisseur, connoiser, because uh-huh. we had read it and never heard it pronounced. <laughs> so we gave it a distinctly Yiddish pronunciation. Oh, wonderful. And, you know, so I'm a great connoiser of <laughs> marmalade or something. And your mother came from a rabbi. She, she came yeah. from a, a, a Sephardic background, mm-hmm. which had kind of come on hard times. Back in the past, they had been rabbis in Baghdad mm-hmm. and so on, but they were on, uh, my Grandmother was a remarkable woman, a great intelligence, but but she had worked as a nurse mm. um, through her life. But your mother was she an Orthodox? Uh, oh Jewish? no, she was a she was a secular Jew. Secular, he was a Nazi. I mean, she was very anti-Jewish in terms of uh-huh. you know they both were not uh, not observant at all. It was one of those comedies of of assimilation where they were so. Um, ferociously determined to be secular mm. that they could only be Jewish. <laughs> the only people <laughs> Good point. Good in point. the world yeah, who yeah, are yeah, that yeah. ferociously determined yeah, to yeah. be secular I, are... I, many of my Jewish friends in Stockholm are atheists. Yes, they exactly. They call themselves atheists. Right, but yeah. you can see the marks of the eraser on their, on their, their, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. their bodies. And they're, and they're very devoted, some of them at least, to the Jewish culture. Yes, and I, I could not have had a more culturally Jewish upbringing mm, in which mm. the things that were valued most were ideas and books and mm, music. Mm. 
music mm. and food and so on. And you know, as a non-Jew, I, I, I wish I was a Jew because I love that culture as well. It's fantastic. Well, we have um, uh, a good friend, a famous uh, American intellectual named uh, Luke Menand, Louis Menand. Uh, and everyone always assumed because he had a beard and was married to a Jewish woman and everybody around him was was Jewish that he was Jewish and he wasn't. He was the only one who was passing as a Jew in the in in our circle. But in any case, so those yeah. were the my parents were were, were huge influence. Huge huge influences. So that was always one vein of 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 thinking and of of uh, concern. Now when I got to writing as a as a as a youngster, I didn't really want to do that at all. I wanted to be write uh, comic essays and reporting and mm. songs in a very different uh, tradition. I wanted to be in show business, not secular humanism. In, <laughs> e- although show business is a form of secular humanism, mm. I suppose. And to this day, my proudest boast, I did a one-man storytelling show at the Public Theater in New York, and I you know, act as a sort of stand-up comedian, and I write uh, music. But I will say that with the coming of the uh, increasing crisis in liberal democracy mm. in the past uh, 15 years, in the world, in the United States, particularly, one of the things that happens is is that your um, uh, uh, your sense of citizenship gets uh, augmented. Mm. So when I left, I was in Paris for most of the 1990s, and the 1990s, in retrospect, very much like the 1890s, very much a a, a, a wonderful fin de siècle kind of golden time when those kinds of urgencies seem to have proceeded, but they came back in a hurry. Like we they came sure back did. Uh, right before 9/11, and um, uh, it's actually bizarre because uh, my daughter was born on September 11th, 1999. Oh. And that's the kind of the climax of my book about the 90s, Paris mm-hmm. and the Moon. And then we were celebrating her second birthday when, when 9-11 happened. So uh, under the pressure of those circumstances, my own work once again became more and more political. And when Trump began to rise in the, in the States, I was, I was eager to go to work writing warning pieces about Trump, in which I think I will say, sadly, because I wish it wasn't the case, that I was somewhat prescient about what a profound and grave danger Trump and Trumpism presented to American Mm. democracy. And so this book is very much a fruit of that moment of, you know, kind of awakened and alarmed citizenship. Did you, did you, I mean, when Trump started to rise... Did you ever believe that he would succeed so well? I mean, from his perspective, as he did. I, I, to, to be honest with you, Christopher, I did. I, I may I have did. been one of the few people who did. I felt it mm. in early in 2016. I was present, in, which, in, a, in a place I never am, at the correspondence dinner, mm. White House correspondence dinner, when famously Obama humiliated Trump. I, I've seen that. Right. I was there, and you could see in Trump's body language, I've never seen a human being as enraged, he cannot tolerate humiliation, mm. you know. I always think um, that uh, most of human history can be told not so much in terms of the clash of economic classes or much less of ideas, but in terms of humiliation felt and hum- revenge taken for humiliation mm. felt. And that was certainly the case with Trump. And um, I-, I say it with no pleasure, but you could sense Hillary Clinton's weakness at that time already. Mm. And, uh, you know, that bizarre thing where, uh, uh, you know, Trump, like Hitler, I, I'm not hesitant to make the comparison, is a charismatic figure without charisma. Mm. It's one of the strangest things, right? You look at Adolf Hitler and you say, how could this, 
strange man. You know, it's one of my favorite stories that Charlie Chaplin, when he first saw Hitler, said, huh? He said, he's stealing my act. He's trying, he looks, he's dressed up like me. He's trying to take advantage of my fame, right? Yeah. And you say to yourself, how could someone who looked like that represent the dream of Aryan yeah. superiority and of yeah. blonde Nordic? But he did. How could Trump, this morbidly obese, um, narcissistic. narcissistic man in a toupee who had failed at every single thing he'd ever done and spoke with a heavy New York accent, how could he ever appeal to rural dwellers in Ohio and Michigan and make them believe that he was their tribune. This man who was patently a phony and a fraud and completely self-interested. It's, you know, this dark mystery of modernity is, yeah. lies in that. Um, but I did feel strongly that he would, he would uh, do well and I felt that we were taking him too lightly and I turned out to be right. And then when he was elected on that night, my, my poor sweet uh, daughter, I shouldn't go, she's my smart, capable daughter, uh, was uh, deeply traumatized. I took her out for a walk to try and explain to her the values that my father had shared with me. And um, this book is the consequence of that. Wow, that's fantastic. I, I, we must talk a little bit more about Trump. I mean, what do you think will happen now? Will he run for president again? And if he does, how will it go? I mean, what will happen? I have no uh, confidence in my own predictive power. I think he certainly wants to run for president mm -hmm. again. I th certainly think he will try to. I think that the tr tragedy of, you know, when people critique liberalism, one of the things they critique in it is its undue proceduralism and institutionalism. Liberals believe in, as my dad did, in procedures because procedures guarantee fair mm -hmm. treatment, right? Mm -hmm. You have a complaint. You don't just get to put your complaint out. There has to be a response. There has to be a procedure believe in institutions, right? Because institutions instantiate procedures. They install procedures. And as a consequence, liberals, especially the liberals who are in the Biden administration, some of whom I know, but all of whom I know is a type, are career institutionalists and proceduralists. Mm. And in some level, they're blind to the threat around them. They don't understand at some deep level how someone as reckless as Trump can uh, do well, but it's the classic confrontation of the gangster mentality with the uh, bureaucratic mentality. Mm -hmm. Gangsters get go a long way because they have no shame at all. They have no rules. They're bound by nothing. And Trump is like that. Trump's a gangster. Mm -hmm. he's, a, he's a classic uh, gangster type. And, um, uh, you know, right now in back home in the States, uh, where, you know, everyone's debating, should they try to indict Trump or not? And there are people, well-meaning people who say, oh, no, don't indict him because that only gives him more attention, which is what he thrives on, more uh, uh, authority. So basically, you're already in a position where well-meaning people are saying, let a gangster be a gangster because otherwise he'll come in and break up everything and he'll be turned violent. I think that's incredibly dangerous mm -hmm. that, that 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 idea has uh, has spread that has spread that far. And um, uh, I know for certain that Donald Trump will never attract a majority of Americans. He won't. He's an unpopular politician. Mm. People can't, you can't say that loudly enough. He's a very unpopular politician. American presidents don't get defeated for re-election very often. Something, they really have to be unpopular. They don't lose by 8 million votes, by 5 million votes. Trump's an unpopular politician, but the American system is, is rigged, to use his favorite term, <laughs> is actually rigged to give undue weight to uh, white rural people. And he's, you know, threaded that needle once and he could do it again. Mm -hmm. what, what's your, 
what's your take on? I mean, we we know that sort of liberal ideas are on the decline in many parts of the world. That you that seems to be very very uncorrelated. I mean, you have Islamic uh, Islamist power getting stronger in quite a few countries. You have. Catholic power in in countries like Poland and Hungary, and you have the Hindu nationalists, and you have and you have the Buddhist extremists in Sri Lanka, the very different world systems, so to speak. But they have something in common that they are more and more ir- illiberal, right? What? Why is that happening at the same time? What is connecting these very different views? It's a it's a big question. It's funny you mentioned the Sri Lankan one, right? Because I. Saw I uh, on my assistant showed me on a Google alert that there was a piece from a Sri Lankan paper um, citing this book and uh, uh, making the case against Buddhist extremism. But and I thought Buddhist? I didn't know Buddhists were extremists. I knew everybody yeah, else was, but I didn't think Buddhists could go that yeah, yeah. that direction. Um, I, they've so killed they've killed Muslims. Yes, yes, mm. I know. It's if you're you know if you're a northern if you're a North American Buddhist, right, where it's all about you know putting yeah, yeah. on your leggings and yeah, sitting. Yeah, yeah. And, but that's a Western. Uh, that's a Western. <laughs> that's the Western version of Buddhist relaxation. Mm. So here's what I think. I have a kind of figure ground reversal uh, that I'm inclined to play on that question, which is that liberalism has never been popular in in that sense, established a bulwark of fixed principles. Uh, of of fixed popularity. Mm. I'm not that old, but even I can remember that in the 1970s, everybody was saying uh, liberal democracies in Europe are threatened by, you must remember this, or uh, the Finlandization of Europe is taking place. The mm. Soviet Union is so much better organized, so much mm. more yeah. militant that they'll, between the Euro communists and the, they'll have the total Finlandization of Europe. Nothing like it ever happened. Liberal democracy was weak. After 9-11, we were talking about 9-11, right? Mm. It was the standard thing. And I was much attacked for this because I said, we're experiencing an enormous tragedy with extraordinary grief. Don't panic. You know, don't, you know, one of my favorite moments in the movies, I don't know if you remember it, is in Apollo 13, when Ed Harris, who also played Jackson Pollock, is playing the, um, the, the controller, the, uh, the capsule controller. Mm. And he says, gentlemen, do not panic. Let us work this problem. And that was an attitude that was totally missing after 9-11. Mm. And what we were told was, look, the Islamic militants have the, the, the lead on us. They have the upper hand in us because they have belief. They have militants. They have organization. Mm. And we're decadent, ironic liberals. And we have to find a new spine and a new sense of purpose. And that led to the catastrophe in Iraq and elsewhere too, when the sensible thing to say was, don't overreact to people who are much weaker than you are. Use our real power, which is our soft power and our mm. our moral power and our technological mm. uh, power, something to be said for the drone and so on as well. So, but we were told then that liberalism was finished. I, in my own lifetime, I've been told that liberalism is finished now three times in the 1970s, then again in the 2000s and now in the in the 2020s, and we could extend that story above. Liberalism is always endangered in that way. So I don't think the story is necessarily what now is endangering liberalism, Mm -hmm. but how does liberalism fight back, given granted that it will always be endangered, granted that it will always be embattled. There's no magic wand we can ever wave that will make liberal democracies secure, solid, and, uh, and unchanging, and that will make liberal institutions one of the points that I try to make in this book, and I may not have made sufficiently, is that 
True liberal democracies rest not on constitutions, not on laws. They rest on the persistence of liberal institutions, on things as seemingly trivial as coffee houses and uh, amateur glee clubs and things as significant as universities and uh, publishing houses. And what they have in common is people working together with others who do not come from their kind, their blood kind, or their clan in order in search of some common purpose. Mm. And if there's one well-established, there's one, to sound like my mom for a moment, (laughs) one robust correlation. My mom loved robust correlations, right? It's a favorite term of art of of (laughs) philosophers love to say, as you did a moment ago, um, I think that's true. My son says it all the time. I think that's true. Scientists always say, I think there's a robust correlation between one thing and another. But it doesn't mean causality, right? No, no. Mm -hmm. And there's a robust correlation between a strong social capital, civic trust, mm. what I love to call, after Frederick Lomstead, commonplace civilization, mm. and the and the the health of a democracy, mm. and yeah. the health of a free market society. You know, it's one of the points I make in the book that I don't think nearly enough people realize is that Adam Smith, the great apostle of the free market, said explicitly and repeatedly, it isn't so to speak that markets make men and women free; it's that free men move towards markets. That, mm. Conditions. No, but it's interesting because this concept of co- robust correlation, as I understand it, it means that these two phenomena always go hand in hand. Yes. But it doesn't tell which causes the other. No, exactly. But but they they have to go hand in hand. Yeah. And we only have to look as far as Russia to see what happens when you have a capitalist economy with no yeah. social capital behind it. You get kleptocracy, yeah, and that's yeah, you get yeah. gangsterism. So. And and with all of the difficulties that the countries of Eastern Europe are struggling with right now, and they're profound, nonetheless, the countries that had strong social capital going out of the, the communist experience mm, mm. seemed, on the whole, Czech Republic, Slovenia, with all of its difficulties, Poland, seemed to have done better mm. than the ones, that, the ones that don't. So I deeply believe that those things are things we can work on every day, trying to expand and reinforce Mm. Um, commonplace civilization around us is is a is a significant thing, which would then lead us to the question of does uh, digital culture weaken or reinforce uh, those the social trust? And that's a whole other. That's a big subject. Right. Oh, we that's, could talk for another hour an, about that. I was in the IT and internet industry in the nineties, right. so I worked right. there a lot. Uh, just before we end, because we have to end <laughs> very soon, but I want to talk about something completely different. You're also into writing musicals. Yes. My, <laughs> How come? When That's I very was, different. When I was in my teens, my then girlfriend and I ran away to London and we saw a show called Side by Side by Sondheim. This is before Sondheim was Sondheim. Mm. And I said, wow, that's great. And I'd all, I wanted to do that. I always loved uh, the Beatles and Joni Mitchell. And above all, I loved the tradition of Rogers and Hart and Cole Porter. I was a very weird mm. 13-year-old kid with mm. Ella Fitzgerald sings Cole Porter records <laughs> where other people had uh, David Bowie records. And <laughs> I, uh, so I always wanted to do that. I came to New York intending to be a songwriter, intending mm. to write Broadway shows. I had written a show about the life of Vladimir Totlin the uh, the Russian constructivist architect. And you'll be shocked to hear, Kister, that there was very little interest among Broadway producers <laughs> in a show about a Russian constructivist architect, oh. the best model of whose work is right here in, in Stockholm at, uh, at, the, at the Moderna. Yeah, 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 right. yeah. Mm. And um, uh, Martha and I made a pilgrimage to it once. Anyway, 
I always continued writing songs and writing lyrics for family and friends, and mm. that was part of my activity. And finally, you sang. You sang. Uh, I sing very badly. Mm-hmm. I play a little. I play guitar reasonably well. Piano very badly. I actually made my debut on jazz guitar at a concert at, at the French Institute. Mm-hmm. I'll send you a picture. I have a beautiful little uh, yeah, De Quisto, uh elite guitar. So anyway, so then David Shire, the great film uh, composer and also a Broadway composer, approached me about doing a show about a decade ago, and we wrote it show together. He was shocked when I said yes. He had been, re- he was a reader of mine and he thought he would just take a, a you know, a license on one of my things. We wrote a show together called Our Table, of which I'm immensely proud. You can find it on Spotify. And then I wrote um, a series of songs for the uh, soprano Melissa Errico, who was in our show. And now I'm working on several new shows with the uh, composer Andrew Lippa and with David Shire again. So it's, uh, writing lyrics is the greatest... Uh, Pleasure. And, and you became a very good friend of Sondheim. I, I wouldn't know. go all the way. I don't know that Steve had many very good friends, and I okay. certainly wouldn't count myself as a very good friend, but we certainly were friends. Yeah. And we had many rich conversations about the art of lyric writing, about which he was completely uh, intolerant. You know, Steve believed that anything less than an absolutely true rhyme, you know, the music that you and I probably love, uh, Leonard Cohen, Joni Mitchell, mm-hmm. David Bowie, and so on, uses rhyme in a way that is uses near rhyme, off rhyme, slant mm, yeah, rhyme. Yeah. Uh, Sondheim thought that was just slovenly. He thought that was <laughs> just slovenly and he couldn't stand oh, it. Oh, that's so funny. And, uh, but, I think he's the most fantastic composer of, in the musical tradition. And and Michel Legrand is my I favorite. I agree. And Sondheim couldn't stand Michel Legrand. No, he, was so, he, was, he was so intolerant of, <laughs> of any practice, not like his own. I think Sondheim was a, was a genius. And as you said, uh, as much as a composer, as, as, as a... As a lyric writer, there's probably a case, my, the joke I always make is, you know, it's famous that Sondheim was adopted by Oscar Hammerstein, you know, mm-hmm. of Rodgers mm-hmm. and Hammerstein. And he said once, I would have been, if Oscar had been a carpenter, I would have been a carpenter. Oscar was a composer, a lyricist. So he became one. I've always said naughtily, impertinently, that I wish that Sondheim had been adopted by Larry Hart rather than by Oscar Hammerstein, because from my mind, the greatest of all American songs, along with Sondheim's, are Rodgers and Hart, and they have yeah. a wonderful acquaintance with American idiom and the American vernacular, yeah, yeah. which is something that I love in the American song. You are doing so many different things. I mean, it's it's really fascinating to hear. And now you've made a movie with Kate Blanchett as well. I, so. I appear <laughs> as myself in a, as in, with Kate, which Kate, Kate Blanchett. I learned an enormous amount. What you learn in life, if I may, Mm. make such a, a, a grotesque and ugly but necessary oversimplification is that you get good at doing things. This is what my whole next book is about. You get good at doing things by practicing doing them. Life is... Um, so true. Art is complicated, but mastery is not that complicated. It involves a commitment to breaking everything down into the smallest possible steps and building it back up. And it was astounding to me to work with Kate Blanchett and discover that that's exactly what she d- she does. She breaks down a complicated scene mm. into its component parts, reconstructs it psychologically so that there's a motive and a reason for everything you say, mm. and then has the physical stamina to do it again and again mm. and again and again. And uh, so it was uh, astounding for me to see that uh, even a great actress like Kate Blanchett is a great athlete in that way, an athlete mm-hmm. of of performance in, mm-hmm. in in that way, and knows exactly knows exactly what she's doing, and that's very encouraging for those of us who have a broad range of things we 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 do practice because we don't have to lay any claim to intuitive genius. We just say, I practice that. 
That's a wonderful way to end. Thank you so much, Adam Gopnik, for coming to our podcast. Thank you for having me to Stockholm, and it's been a pleasure speaking.